Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. Now, I'm thrilled you're making Open Your Eyes part of your inspiration time each week. I'm an avid podcast listener, and instead of music, I listen to podcasts when I run, exercise, or drive. It helps me stay energized and optimistic throughout the day, and I love to learn all I can. So, if you're the same, just subscribe to Open Your Eyes on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and when we release a podcast each Monday morning, it will be automatically in your podcast app inbox. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about starting your impossible. Sir William Thompson, otherwise known as Lord Kelvin, was one of the most famous physicists of his day. In 1900, he was a pioneer in electric and magnetic forces. He would develop submarine telegraphy, resulting in the first Atlantic telegraph cables. He was the leading expert in thermodynamics, and with all his knowledge and expertise, in 1895, he stated that flying machines are impossible. And Lord Kelvin wasn't the only one. Joseph LeConte, Thomas Edison, and dozens of others said that airplanes would never fly. The challenges were too big. And for decades, if not centuries, scientists and others had attempted air flight with little success. There were several impossible challenges. The first was how to create lift. When you get into an airplane, what causes lift? Among other things, it's the shape of the wings. The top side of airplane wings are shaped curving upward, while the underside of the wings remain flat. Why? When air hits the wing, it travels faster over the top than the bottom. And when air moves faster, the pressure of the air decreases. So the pressure on top of the wing is less than the pressure on the bottom of the wing. And the difference in pressure creates a force on the wing that lifts the wing into the air. But to create lift, you need the thrust necessary to create the wind speed across the wings. For a 747 nowadays, the speed necessary to create lift is 184 miles per hour. But creating speed in the early 1900s seemed impossible. Everything was heavy. The wing support systems and propellers were made of wood, drivetrains of heavy steel, and it was almost impossible to find reliable lighter weight materials. And there wasn't an engine light enough or with the power necessary to power an aircraft. The next problem was how to control the aircraft. Many early glider flights resulted in death or serious injury because the glider would suddenly plummet face first into the ground or roll over uncontrollably. So controlling the pitch, the yaw, or keeping the nose in the front, and the roll of the aircraft, and doing so with lightweight material was an impossible challenge. Now, while dozens of scientists made one breakthrough after another, the Wright brothers are perhaps the most famous American pioneers in air travel. Why? Because they were the first to solve two problems, thrust and control. But they first had to improve on the glider design. So beginning in 1898, they tested glider designs over and over again using the designs of other aircraft pioneers. And they did this by creating their own wind tunnel where they would test wing design. 
The engine they built to power the aircraft was lighter. It was cast from aluminum, extremely rare at the time. And they eliminated the heavy fuel pump and made creative designs in drive chains using their knowledge of bicycles. And in the end, the Wright's 1903 airplane had a wingspan of 40 feet, weighed 600 pounds, and had a 12-horsepower engine. Most of all, the plane had a control system developed by the brothers. So on December 17, 1903, flying into a 27-mile-an-hour headwind, the brothers completed three flights, and one was reported at 852 feet in length before the aircraft dove to the ground. Now, years of testing and retesting would follow. Hundreds of failures, crash after crash, and finally in 1904, Wilbur flew their latest designed aircraft 4,000 feet. And three months later, they flew nearly three miles, mostly in circles, using their new independent control system. Then they spent years in Europe soliciting support, learning, testing, and retesting. They raised money, fought off criticism, endured crashes and injuries, and flat out would not quit. Perhaps the most famous flight of the Wright brothers was when Orville took his 82-year-old father on a nearly seven-minute flight, the only powered aerial excursion of Milton Wright's life. The aircraft rose to about 350 feet in height, while the elderly Wright called to his son, higher, Orville, higher. <laughs> Imagine, it was only 18 years earlier that Lord Kelvin proclaimed air travel was impossible. Now, what caused Orville and Wilbur to start their impossible, their impossible pursuit of air travel? Why didn't they just listen to the experts of the day? Well, the answer to that question reveals the answer to starting your impossible. You know, the impossible that you're dealing with in your life. We all have the impossible from time to time. You know, a change needs to happen, but it seems impossible. Perhaps you've tried before and failed. Maybe you must do something that will take sacrifice, and you don't know if you can. Perhaps there's a risk, and you may lose. Perhaps you're facing your impossible alone without the support of others. Perhaps it's a new job, a new attitude, new habits, new diet, or new life. Whatever it might be, just like Orville and Wilbur, you must start you're impossible. But what gave the Wright brothers the power to do the impossible? Well, his name was Otto Lilienthal. He had a hill near his home in Berlin, and he used that hill over and over again to attempt more than 2,000 flights with his gliders. He studied the flight of white storks and the aerodynamics of their wings, and then he published his findings. Then on the 9th of August, 1896, Lilienthal went, as on previous weekends, to do another glider test. It was a sunny day, and the first few flights were successful. But during the fourth flight, Lilienthal's glider pitched forward, and he couldn't shift his weight in time to make a correction, and he fell from a height of about 50 feet, nose first, into the ground. And he would die later that day from his injuries. Now, the Wright brothers credit Otto for their success. You see, they started with his design. Now, they abandoned his designs later on. But more than his designs, it was Lilienthal's dedication that inspired the Wrights to keep going when they were tired, afraid, and couldn't see a way around the impossible challenges. So, 
as you start your impossible, look for your inspiration. You see, it's often other people that give us the design and desire to reach what we can't do on our own. This is essential in starting your impossible. A few years ago, professors at the Harvard Medical School did extensive research into understanding why Alcoholics Anonymous had such a high success rate in helping alcoholics achieve the impossible and reach sobriety and remain sober. They studied 1,700 people in AA treatment, and here's what they learned. Two major factors contributed to the success. The first was the social network created by attending AA meetings. This changed the thinking of the participants. You see, they saw other people achieving the impossible, and the learning and inspiration gained from them enabled their own change. The next finding in the research was AA helped attendees at fighting their depression. Depression has a deep and correlated link with alcoholism. And surprisingly, the increased spirituality and religious practices learned in AA helped with depression and increased the confidence of the participants. Now, these are keys to almost any impossible you're trying to reach. You need connection with other people where you can find inspiration, like the Wright brothers did from Lilienthal. You need a social network of influence. Now, when we speak of a social network, what do we mean? Just as AA participants attend AA meetings regularly to gain strength from each other, we all need the social side of learning to keep our perspective right. Many of you know the story of John Woolman, an American Quaker who lived throughout the middle years of the 18th century. He is the man who almost single-handedly rid the Quaker society of the day of the practice of slavery. At 25 years of age, he decided his work as a tradesman, while able to provide a good living, was not why he was put on this earth. And he decided that the retail trade demanded too much of his time. He believed he had a calling to preach truth and light among his friends and others. And in the 18th century, many American Quakers were affluent conservative slaveholders and John Woolman, as a young man, strongly believed it was his calling to rid his beloved society of this terrible practice. His method was unique. He didn't raise a big storm about it or start a protest movement. His method was one of gentle but clear and persistent persuasion. He accomplished his mission by traveling up and down the East Coast by foot or horseback, visiting slaveholders. The approach was not to censor the slaveholders, but to raise questions. What does the owning of slaves do to you as a moral person? What kind of institution are you binding over to your children? Man by man, inch by inch, by persistently returning and revisiting and pressing his gentle argument over a period of 30 years, the scourge of slavery was eliminated from the Quaker society the first religious group in America to formally denounce and forbid slavery among its members. A seemingly impossible task. It was his contact with his fellow Quakers that was necessary for that kind of significant change. I call this walking with giants. 
It's interacting with people who draw you up to live in a higher, better way. The people with which you surround yourself have a huge impact on how you see yourself, your challenges, and your ability to face those challenges. If you want a sober life, surround yourself with giants who know what it's like to get sober. If you want a thriving business, walk with giants who have done the same. Walking with giants may seem intimidating, but not so. After a while, their way of walking will become your way of walking. And remember, many giants don't look like giants. They're often humble, unassuming, but remarkably good at what they do. And to walk with giants doesn't mean you need to find noticeably extraordinary people. Let's say you've set a goal to get out of debt. And for years, you've been unable to create a path for change. Instead of going it alone, you decide to attend a financial freedom class at your local church. When you first get there, you look around and you're tempted to leave. But after several sessions, you realize that the people there are much like you. Their commitment begins to inspire you. Now you're walking with giants. And you may ask, why does this kind of social interaction give us added strength? Well, to answer that question, you need to go back to learning theory. 50 years ago, education specialists believed the best learning happened as a result of repetitive teaching and reinforcement or punishment. However, Albert Bandura would come along and introduce social learning theory. This learning theory proved that we learn by observing the actions of others. In fact, we learn best when social learning is part of any learning exercise. Now, since then, hundreds of studies have been done to discover and show why we learn so well in social ways. And here's what we've learned. The part of your brain that you use for social learning is the same part you use for emotions and memories. When you learn from others and you learn from ongoing interaction with others, you store those memories with emotion. And as a result, they're more powerfully recalled and used. That's why AA sessions work so well. And interestingly, when you learn from others in a social setting, researchers found that you use more of the neurotransmitter oxytocin. This creates feelings associated with your learning, making those the most likely impulses you'll recall and use in the future. So, how do you practically apply this to start your impossible? Well, let's say you've tried to lose that 30 pounds for years without success. It's impossible, right? Walk with giants. Get involved with others doing the same thing. You will engage the social learning part of you, and you'll likely find more resolve as a result. You will observe the behaviors of others, feel the emotion by interacting with them, relate to the feelings, and gain strength from others. So walk with giants, and it will change your impossible. Now, you may be tempted not to join with others in the pursuit of your impossible. Perhaps you don't want to feel inferior or embarrassed. Perhaps you're afraid. It's okay. It's understandable. But when you become willing and try, it's the first major step to reaching your impossible. And ironically, in the very thing that scares you, you may learn the exact thing that will help you succeed. Now, you may remember in the Harvard study of AA participants, Increased spirituality and faith helped combat the effects of depression. 
Why is spirituality a factor? Why does that empower change and help doing the impossible? Does faith in a higher power really enable doing the impossible? Well, let's start with the power of faith. I believe that the moment you let faith into your life, you will see more power and peace enter into your life. You worry less, you trust more. And when I talk about faith, I mean, you don't know how something may happen, but you believe it will happen. And you don't know or clearly see how you can do it, but you believe you will be successful anyway. There is power in faith. Faith is an enabling power. You gotta believe. I believe the biggest quality of Wilbur and Orville Wright was they continued to believe. John Woolman believed he could rid slavery from the Quaker religion. You gotta believe. When you open your eyes, you put on faith. Open your eyes to the fact that you can do what you set out to do. Now, there are a few essentials when you start your impossible. You may have heard the story of the Werbertrude Castle in what is now Germany. In 1140, the castle and its occupants, including the Duke of Welf, were under siege from the Duke of Swabia and his brother, King Conrad III. Now, Conrad and his men were fierce, fearless, and ruthless. The siege lasted a long time, but finally, Conrad conquered the defenses of the castle and was about to lay waste to everything. The Duke of Wealth offered his surrender, and Conrad granted him permission to depart in safety. But the Duke's wife, the Lady Uta, did not trust Conrad's offer. How could she preserve her husband's life? It seemed impossible. You see, she knew that Conrad hated her husband and would kill all the men as soon as they took possession of the castle. So she sent a message to Conrad entreating him to give her safe conduct for herself and all the other women in the garrison and that they might come out safely with as many of their valuables as they could carry on their backs. The letter she wrote read, We, the women of the castle, humbly realize that our fate is in your hands, and we ask only that you allow us to leave at sunrise tomorrow safely with our children and whatever we can carry on our backs. For this, we entreat you and submit our lives to your mercy. Well, the request was granted, and the next morning, at sunrise, when the castle gates opened, outstepped the women with their children following behind. The women were not carrying their gold or valuables, but their own husbands on their backs. And on the backs of unmarried women were their own brothers or fathers. Each woman staggered under the weight of her burden. Now, Conrad is said to have been affected to tears by this extraordinary display and remained true to his word by letting the men live. Hence, the castle was named Werbertru, or the castle of the loyal wives. The courage of the loyal wives to do the impossible changed the castle from one of many castles in now modern Germany to one worth remembering, from an ordinary castle to a sacred place. Without their courage, the castle would not likely be remembered today. The truth is that whenever you're facing the impossible, at its deepest, most fundamental level, It requires courage. The definition of courage is the mental or moral strength to resist opposition, danger, or hardship. It implies firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulty. 
Now, there are thousands of stories of courage of heroes who in the moment of crisis demonstrated courage. But untold are the millions of stories of those who exercise courage in everyday life. My brother married later in life, and when he and his new wife gave birth to a new baby boy named Dax, they were thrilled. But 18 months into Dax's life, it was obvious that things were not right. Soon, he was diagnosed as severely autistic. Now, Dax is now a teenager, and I can't describe or count the number of hours and sacrifices that Dax's parents have made. My brother will often sleep outside Dax's door to ensure Dax doesn't wander in the night because Dax doesn't sleep. Nights and weekends are always occupied. Vacations, peace, and rest, almost impossible. Now, I know some of you listening to this can relate, but how do you face this impossible? Courage. How do you face the impossibility of growing your new business, supporting a struggling child, or changing your bad habit? Courage. And how do you find courage? Well, Professor Martin Seligman, one of the founders of positive psychology, has observed that the most common characteristic of those who were able to overcome almost any kind of challenge and find courage for dealing with what is out of their control is that they are optimistic. And the good news is that people can be taught, to some degree, to think like optimists. One way Professor Seligman suggests is by helping people view setbacks as things that are one, temporary, two, local, and three, changeable. In other words, they react to failures by thinking, it's going away quickly, it's just this one situation, and I can do something about it. You see, this way of thinking, this optimism, gives you courage. When you take the optimistic view, you can act with more posture, more energy, because you believe that you can do something about it. Recently, as a leader of an organization, I was a bit down with the circumstances resulting from COVID-19. With all the ups and downs in the economy, we couldn't find enough employees to hire to service our customers, and we were struggling to keep up. Before a board meeting, I lamented to our chairman, and in response to my worries, she said, I believe in miracles, and I'm certain if you stay committed, everything will work out. It was like a shot of energy went through me. I believe in miracles. She was right. And I stayed with it, and everything did work out. And I've remembered that experience ever since. I believe in miracles. I believe in good fortune, and I'm going to do everything in my control and have faith in the uncontrollable. There is something energizing when you fix your courage, when you decide to stay optimistic and keep your impossible sailing forward. It's like you raise your flag and say, I will prevail. In the 1800s, some of the most important battles happened at sea. It's how the Dutch and Spanish and English and French grew their territories through the conquests of their navy. Now, the strategy of a sea battle was to bring your armada full speed upon your enemy's ships. And as you sailed by, you unleashed your cannons. Now, your target for these cannon shots was the mast. Why? Well, you didn't want to sink the ship. Once sunk, it had no value to you. But once you destroyed the mast, you rendered the ship useless. Then you could board it, take the treasures aboard, and add the ship to your fleet. Now, every navy had a flagship. 
and aboard the flagship was the admiral. And from the flagship, messages were signaled to the other ships to coordinate the battle. And usually the flagship had at least 100 cannons, 50 on each side. So the flagship led the battle. The problem is that the signal for surrender was the flagship's main flag being lowered. So if the mast was broken, the rest of the fleet would think that the flagship had surrendered because the flag was no longer flying. Well, in the Battle of Caperdown between the English and the Dutch, the English flagship Venerable lost its mast. And with the flag down, the rest of the fleet was confused. Then one of the crew, Jack Crawford, climbed up the broken mast and nailed the colors to the mast. Seeing the flagship flag still flying, the fleet preserved its fight and won the battle. Following this, the term, nail your colors to the mast, became known for staying engaged in the midst of difficulty, for courage. And in Jack Crawford's hometown, the people raised a statue depicting Jack's heroic actions. And the inscription of that statue Nail your colors to the mast. Have you ever had the wind taken out of your sail? Can't seem to move forward? Can't navigate like you used to? Feel like things are impossible? Then now is the time to take courage and nail your colors to the mast. You're the flagship of your fleet. And when the wind goes out of your sails, when you lose your mast, so to speak, the fleet assumes you've surrendered. So keep your colors nailed for certain. Now. Can I pause just for a minute? If you're like me or others listening to this podcast, it's likely you know what your impossible is. You made the decision to start that business or change that habit, but for whatever reason, you didn't. It's time. It's time to shift from the life you've had and the person you've been into that new life and better person. And I understand that you may be trying to do something you haven't done before. I know it will require sacrifice. I get it. You're trying to change a long-standing habit. But this is your life and your future we're talking about, and you can do the impossible. You're going to find things will get tough, but you'll also find amazing things you may have never thought possible. And I can predict that you will question at times, is it worth it? It is. You can do the impossible. We must fix our minds on the fact that we can do the impossible, and we have to decide in advance that it is worth it. So, take charge. It's time to take charge of your life. Now, laid to rest in the Pine Grove Cemetery in Brunswick, Maine, is a former governor of Maine who, when he was elected in 1866, received the highest percentage of votes ever received by a governor before or since in the state. Born in Brewer, Maine, Governor Joshua Chamberlain was the oldest of five children. He graduated from Brunswick College in 1852, married Fanny Adams in 1855, and began his career as a professor of modern languages. But with the outbreak of the Civil War, Chamberlain volunteered for service. And through the battles of Fredericksburg and Chancellorville, Chamberlain would earn the rank of colonel. Now, Chamberlain was made famous by his leadership at the Battle of Gettysburg. On the second day of the battle, Confederate forces assembled in positions below the hills south of town, and they began to attack the Union left flank, which was atop a small slope called Little Round Top. 
and Chamberlain found himself in the 20th Maine, which he commanded, at the far left end of the entire Union line. Given his battle experience, Chamberlain understood the need for the 20th Maine to hold the Union left at all costs. The men from Maine waited. The Alabama 15th attacked the left flank over and over again. Time and time again, the Confederates struck until the 20th Maine had incurred high casualties and had exhausted their supply of ammunition. Colonel Chamberlain recognized the dire circumstances. Without ammunition, they could not withstand another charge. So he ordered his boys on the left wing to fix bayonets and prepare for a charge. Upon his command, the 20th Maine charged down the hill with the left wing swinging inward like a hinge. The Confederate army was caught off guard by the unexpected move and many soldiers surrendered. And this courageous maneuver served as a catalyst to turn the tide of the battle. Find your courage. Courage inspires. Courage lifts. Fix bayonets. Nail your colors to the mast. And it's time to walk with giants. And as we come to an end today, remember Orville and Wilbur Wright, who did what no one thought was possible. You too can fly to heights you never thought possible. And today is the day to make that happen. It's time to start your impossible. Thanks for being here today. Join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.